The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Good day, listeners. Today is November 1st, 2021, and this is Renee Rosati, a member of the Public Affairs Committee of the North American Spine Society and current PM&R Spine Fellow at Emory Medical Center in Atlanta, Georgia. I would like to welcome everyone to this next installment of our podcast series, showcasing interesting articles from the upcoming Spineline NAS membership magazine. Today we will be discussing the article by William Summers, Ryan Russell, Eduardo Carrera, and Gregory Moore, titled Basivertebral Nerve Ablation, Pearls and Pitfalls, in the September-October 21 issue. You will have the pleasure of hearing directly from William Summers and Gregory Moore. Our hope and goal of this discussion is to further expound on their compelling article in our upcoming journal. Let's start with getting to know the authors. Dr. Summers and Dr. Moore, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we move into the discussion? Sure, I'll uh, I'll start us. Um, So I'm Dr. Uh, Will Summers. I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama currently a uh, third-year resident in uh, physiatry, physical medicine and rehab in the University of Colorado's program with an interest in spine and planning to apply for fellowships in uh, uh, the next couple months here. So very excited to be here to talk about the article. That's great. You're getting an early start. Thank you so much (laughs) for being here. Yeah, thank you. And I'm Greg Moore. I'm uh, in private practice in Eugene, Oregon. I am the partner and co-founder of Pacific Spine and Sports. Uh, We offer interventional uh, solutions for people's uh, low back pain, neck pain. Uh, We have been involved in a number of different clinical trials and have been uh, with the Relievant team uh, for the last uh, 10 years, uh, starting with the SMART trial. Wow, that's wonderful to have that much experience with this procedure. Thank you. Um, Dr. Summers, let's dive into the article. Your article starts off with a case report about a 46-year-old female who presented with axial low back pain. Can you tell us what other treatments the patient tried before she decided to pursue a basovertebral nerve ablation? Sure. Um, so yeah, this this patient uh, was actually a patient of Dr. Moore's, and just like any other kind of axial back pain without any big red, red flag symptoms like weakness, incontinence, and things like that, we uh, she started off with just conservative treatment with physical therapy, NSAIDs. She tried a tens unit, acupuncture, weight loss for a while without you know any significant relief in her pain. Um, and I, in fact, it got worse after an exacerbation of it, after initially injuring it, weightlifting, and then um, kind of worsening after a golfing accident. Um, she was eventually seen by an interventional uh, interventional spine specialist uh, after about six months. Uh, so after trying these conservative measures for six months, she had imaging at that time. Um, and, you know, her MRI showed an annular tear at L4-5, some degenerative disc disease. Um, as well as some facet arthropathy. And she underwent uh, a few procedures, including um, an interlaminar L5-S1, transforaminal medial branch blocks, intradiscal PRP injections, and 
uh, the, of note, like the PRP and the interlaminars helped a little bit, but you know, eventually her pain came back and at the eight, about the 18th month mark from the onset of her symptoms, that was when um, kind of uh, her and Dr. Moore opted to proceed with the, the ablation. And tell us about the patient's outcome after the procedure. Yeah, she she did well really quickly. Um, after a couple of days, noted relief. Uh, she was seen in follow up two weeks after the procedure and already noted 80 to 85 percent of her the relief of her pain. Um, and 18 months out from the procedure, noted greater than 90 percent of uh, of pain relief. And this was a big deal for her because she's incredibly active. She was back to kind of running, uh, doing triathlons, playing golf. So we, she was able to pretty much get back to uh, kind of her pre-morbid uh, condition and quality of life. Sounds like an excellent outcome. Yeah. Dr. Moore, how do you define vertebrogenic pain? You know, for a long time, uh, our focus when we think about axial pain uh, has really been on the disc. Uh, you know, we have our algorithm where we look at sacroiliac joint, look at the facets, but we know that the disc is a player, uh, you know, in about 35% of individuals who present with chronic low back pain. Uh, with that algorithm in mind, vertebrogenic pain is taking a step further. Uh, when I say that, I mean that vertebrogenic pain is pain that's coming from damaged or and or degenerative uh, end plates. So we may look at it like a continuum. Uh, at least that's how I perceive it. Uh, when we look at some of the data from uh, the trials that have been done, we see that many of them are in that Fremen grade three category. And so when I think about patients in Fremen grade three, they have some modic changes. Uh, they also uh, may have an annular tear like in Lori's case. And what we've seen is that uh, there's actually quite a, uh, a higher concentration of nociceptors um, within the end plate than within the disc. And in some individuals who have a uh, annular tear, we may actually see uh, a twofold increase or more. Uh, so we know that the end plates uh, act uh, in various ways and, and they're subjected to increased loading as the disc degenerates. Uh, with that, uh, we can see end plate fissuring and accelerated degeneration and the chronic inflammatory response as the disc material starts to enter into the vertebra. Uh, the inflammatory response is what leads to the modic changes. So we have an objective biomarker for vertebrogenic pain. Um, also of note, uh, there's recently been an ICD code uh, that documents vertebrogenic pain. That's excellent. We'll go into that a little more later in our discussion about that ICD-10 code. Um, can you describe the different types of modic changes and how modic changes relate to patient selection for the basovertebral nerve ablation? Sure. Uh, there are three types of modic changes, type 1, type 2, and type 3. Uh, modic, Michael Modic was a radiologist, first described modic changes back in 1988. Uh, you know, at that time, there wasn't really any kind of uh, therapeutic uh, intervention aimed at modic changes, and so they've sort of fallen by the wayside. Um, when we look at them now, we look at them with a slightly different lens, uh, because we know that modic type 
uh, one changes are associated with more acute uh, inflammation and are strongly associated with disabling low back pain. In fact, if you have modic changes, there's a high likelihood that you may have low back pain. Uh, modic changes uh, type two are subacute changes and also significantly associated with low back pain. Uh, both modic type one and type two are indications for the basovertebral nerve ablation. And studies have shown that patients with modic type two do just as well as patients with type one following the BVN ablation. Uh, modic changes type three are end-stage changes of the end plate, sclerosis, trabecular fracture, uh, that are not associated with low back pain. Okay. If a patient had type three modic changes, would that qualify them to be part of this procedure or no? No. Dr. Summers, let's talk about the SMART study, which was a randomized control trial comparing basovertebral nerve ablation to sham. Can you describe the outcome of that study? Sure. Um, yeah, just to provide a little bit of background. So yeah, the SMART study was a double-blinded uh, randomized control uh, trial at multi-centers um, comparing uh, the BVN procedure versus sham. So the physicians, and the patient were completely blinded to kind of the arms of the study that they were they were enrolled in, and, um, and and what they found is that the patients who received this procedure, this uh, basovertebral nerve ablation, did significantly better than than the sham procedure at three months, which is saying quite something. Um, you know, sham control uh, is a very you know high evidence bar, so. Um, at 12 months, uh, so at the three month mark, they, they found this significant difference. So in the 12 month uh, uh, timeframe, this study was unblinded and it was converted into a prospective single arm study and enrolled 117 patients uh, who underwent this procedure as part of the SMART study. And then these people were followed for five years. Um, and these people had, and the results of this are, are pretty uh, remarkable. I mean, so one third of them, of this 117 were pain-free. Um, half, half of them had 75% pain relief, two thirds had greater than 50% relief. So that's saying quite something, especially when you consider that a large part of the, this cohort had chronic back pain. So pain uh, for up to five years or even, even longer. So, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing because it, it kind of going even further is that two thirds of these people, so a lot of the results were lasting, but then even two thirds of these people were kind of having this normal level activity before their pain started. So similar to our patient kind of getting back to where they wanted to be incredible quality of life going kind of back to normal, so to speak. That's great. That's why we all go into medicine, right? To help patients right. get those functional gains back. Mm hmm. There was a lot of excitement surrounding the Intracept trial. This was a prospective randomized controlled open label trial examining the BVN versus standard of care. It was stopped early and offered and patients were offered the procedure in the standard of care group at three months. Can you tell mm -hmm. us why? Sure. So um, studies in the, the design of this study, and it's not uncommon for there to be a, an independent review uh, during the study analyzing um, kind of uh, the treatment arm 
Um, and so what, what it is, is this group of independent physicians and statisticians looking at the now, uh, analyzing the data as the trial is ongoing. And rarely this, this group of, and uh, this group of physicians and statisticians will recommend um, a change after showing clear superiority or significant improvement. And they did in the both primary endpoints and secondary endpoints. So looking at pain as well as disability scores. So they recommended stopping enrolling people into this trial and they planned a crossover. So a large part of these people stopped um, the standard of care and started undergoing this procedure because of the clear significance that the, the study showed. Um, and this occurred at the three month mark. Um, so the intercept trial is, a, is to our knowledge, the only uh, trial for low back pain that, that was stopped early showing clear superiority um, and which is incredibly exciting. So kind of with the SMART trial, they showed an, an improvement in pain and function um, as well as uh, three quarters, and we're talking about a disability index as the primary outcome, showed a 10-point improvement um, compared to 33% standard of care. So again, 75% of these people who are undergoing this procedure compared to 33% of just standard of care. So this was, and the pain scores were also um, significant with three uh, a drop in 3.5 using the uh, visual acuity uh, uh, scale. Uh, versus uh, one point drop in the standard of care. So that's a whole lot to say. And that just means that at three months, the group, the, the data showed us a clear, a clear cut um, benefit from the procedure. And then they stopped enrolling people into, the, into that standard arm and allowed them to enroll into the ablation. Um, and so again, it's kind of like the SMART trial, the, the data uh, uh, even longer out at 12 months showed continued improvement. Yep, wonderful. Are there specific exam findings that differentiate vertebrogenic pain from other causes of chronic low back pain? Sure, yeah, so when we think about kind of vertebrogenic, there's nothing incredibly specific, but what maybe what would um, kind of lead you to this diagnosis would be more pain kind of with kind of anterior spinal column loading or stress so things like um, prolonged sitting or bending um, and then kind of getting some improvement when that kind of that stress is translated to the kind of posterior kind of more of the facets when you're standing and walking um, so some people get relief with those but kind of the, that kind of signal without any uh, myelopathy radiculopathy or ridiculous symptoms um, combined with some of the imaging findings of the modic changes, that, that definitely can help lead you down to uh, kind of more vertebrogenic picture. Mm -hmm. Sounds like patient selection is really crucial um, in order to select this procedure. Definitely. Dr. Moore, what are some of the exclusion criteria in the two studies we previously mentioned? So the study's exclusion criteria included other primary pain generators or, or indications such as radicular pain, uh, spinal stenosis with neurogenic claudication or, or symptomatic spinal stenosis, disc extrusion or protrusion greater than five millimeters, uh, spondylolisthesis, and other you know, potential conditions that would uh, convolute the results such as diagnosed osteoporosis, infection, BMI greater than 40, 
significant depression, addiction behaviors, compensated injury, and sedation. Uh, the SMART study excluded patients with prior surgery, but patients with prior discectomy were allowed in the intercept trial. In fact, 11% of the patients in the intercept trial had prior discectomy, and they did as well as patients without a history of prior low back surgery. Excellent, because that makes up a huge portion of our patient population. So that's great to have some data on that as well. Can you tell us how the vertebral nerve ablation is performed? And can you describe the anatomy as well as the technique? Sure. Uh, we want to ablate the BVN early uh, along its path inside the vertebral body to more completely include all of the nerve uh, before the nerve branches or, or what we say arborizes. Uh, the introducer or the access cannula is placed in the vertebral body using a transpedicular approach. Although the approach is similar to other transpedicular procedures, such as vertebral augmentation or pedicle screw placement, the posterior placement requires growing from lateral to medial across the pedicle uh, by gaining access more medially as we start to enter into the vertebral body. We're able to enhance the access with the curved cannula. Uh, the curved cannula is then placed through the introducer cannula to create such a path uh, to the BVN. And once the channel is successfully created, the bipolar probe is placed across the BVN and radio frequency lesion is created to ablate the nerve and, and obviously all done under fluoroscopy. Uh, since the BVN loses its myelin sheath shortly after entering into the vertebral body through the vasovertebral foramen, we believe this supports the durability of the outcomes that we're seeing. Uh, as Dr. Summers had alluded to, the five-year data, uh, also the durability of the procedure over time. We're seeing the improvements in function and pain are years after post-treatment. In fact, it was 6.4 years on average in the uh, five-year data that we uh, published uh, without the need for repeated procedures and with a reduction, significant reduction in opiates as a secondary measure. Wow, that is just superb. All right, Dr. Summers, does the basovertebral nerve ablation have a dedicated procedural code? Yeah, so we are we're entering some very exciting times for this procedure. Um, thanks to NAS and six other sponsoring societies, there's been a there's a tremendous amount of you know outcomes data as well that supports it. And uh, starting in January January 1st of 20, uh, 2022, so only a couple months away now, is um, there's a new CPT Category One code for this procedure. Um, and so the final numbers are being uh, assigned right now, but the, the amount of support is, is incredible, um, which, you know, led this from going to an unlisted code to a category one code. So very, really exciting stuff. How much procedure time should a physician book this treatment for? Yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to let Dr. Moore, he's the master on this procedure, but when we were talking about kind of this patient and in the procedure itself, he's, he provided a lot of insight and um, I, I believe he mentioned 45 to 90 minutes, but this, this can vary because you don't, it, it depends on the amount or the number of levels that you're treating. So I might let him chime in too. That's absolutely right. Uh, Dr. Summers, uh, you know, if you're, really efficient with your placement uh, and getting your cannulas 
you know, starting the ablation once your first cannula has been placed uh, and then starting to place your second cannula so that by the time you're done with your first ablation, your second cannula is already ready to go. Uh, then you can do this, you know, in about 45 minutes. You can do it under general anesthesia or under MAC. We did general for a large number of our cases. We're starting to move more towards doing them under monitored anesthesia care. For a three-level, uh, I would book 90 minutes. Wow, and that seems that seems pretty fast for three levels for the amount of work that you're doing. It didn't um, start off that way. Yeah. How long have you been doing these? Uh, since 2011. Okay. So a decade. <laughs> that's that's excellent experience that you have already with this procedure. Um, Dr. Summers, how do you mitigate the risks of infection? Sure. That's a, it's a good question and something that, you know, I think with any procedure you worry about the risk of infection. But for, for this particular procedure, there hasn't there haven't been, in our knowledge, any reports of infection um, from the studies or um, from uh, Dr. Moore's kind of anecdotal knowledge as well from performing this for so long is, you know, in theory, you know, you could get some more of like a cellulitis or from an incisional um, inf uh, infection in theory. But um, the thought is, is that where you're going uh, into the vertebral body is very vascular. And so that also might help minimize the risk of infection. Um, on top of all of the obvious uh, clean procedures and sterile techniques that are used. Do you do any preoperative antibiotics or postoperative IV antibiotics? Yeah, so uh, after the procedure, uh, patients get, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Moore, about uh, within 30 minutes get a, a dose of IV antibiotics. I think it'll always come down to, uh, you know, individual preference for post-operative care, you know, what the standard of care is for some people within their community. But we typically will give a preoperative dose, uh, you know, something like ANSEF uh, or, you know, whatever, uh, if uh, they have some sort of allergy to ANSEF, but, uh, you know, to try to uh, prevent as a skin prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Dr. Moore, have there been adverse events reported? The most common adverse events have been transient leg pain or an increase in back pain that occurred in about five to 6% of the patients. Uh, the majority of patients improved within a few weeks with a single course of oral steroids or some uh, pain medication. Mm, okay, sounds pretty good as far as adverse events goes as well. Yeah, the safety profile for this procedure is really outstanding. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. What should be our takeaway points from your article? Uh, you know, from my standpoint, uh, vertebrogenic pain is a significant source of low back pain uh, that is diagnosed by the presence of modic changes type 1 or type 2 on routine MRI. Uh, the BVN transmits vertebrogenic pain from the vertebral end plates. Uh, patients with vertebrogenic pain present with anterior column pain that includes the midline. It's worse with bending and sitting and improved with standing and walking. So it presents much like disc mediated pain. So we think anterior column pain plus modic changes, uh, intercept may be a good uh, procedure for them. Uh, and I have become more adept at uh, using it in some patients as a first line therapy. 
uh, two level one studies, both with long-term data and, you know, with one now out over five years, like we said, 6.4 years on average, support statistically significant improvement in patients following a single treatment with BVN ablation. Uh, and BVN ablation is a minimally invasive outpatient procedure with an excellent safety profile. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Yeah, and uh, like everything he said is are things I'm thinking about too, but um, yeah, the durability is just of uh, the procedure is incredible. I don't, I'm not familiar with any other procedures that have this sort of, sort of evidence for the durability. Usually we're thinking about when are we repeating the, some procedure or a steroid injection when people are right after they get one, they're already asking, when can I get my next one? So this is something that we can use as, as, you know, the longer, longer durability to, you know, help quality of life and pain. So it's, I think it's, it's great. Sounds like a great option for the right patient. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully we'll see more of it um, in more practices throughout the future with such good study results. So I believe that wraps up the questions for today's podcast. Thank you for your time, Dr. Summers and Dr. Moore. To all the listeners who tuned in, thank you for joining us today on our NAS Public Affairs podcast. We'd like to acknowledge the help of our wonderful behind the scenes NAS staff which make these podcasts possible. Jeff Carson, Pamela Town, and Verona Schaefer. I'm Renee Rosati, signing off from Atlanta, Georgia. And don't forget, stay spine safe.